0: welcome to a very special episode of Round guy the podcast as we explore iowa's greatest rock and roll guitarist ever tommy bowen tommy bowen was born in sioux city iowa uh he played with a band there called touch of blue which is in the iowa rock and roll hall of fame as he is also was a solo artist uh tommy uh was uh he broke out in denver he was uh played with lots of uh Uh, guys like Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King and Albert King and uh, as just a teenager. And then he wound up playing uh, in a jazz album called Spectrum that was a really big hit. And then he played with uh, the James Gang for a while and he played with Deep Purple and he replaced uh, Richie in Deep Purple uh, and he had a couple albums, uh, one called Teasers, which is my favorite album he ever put together, and another one uh, called Private Eyes that was actually a gold record. Uh, he died a little little too short for us, but we are have the opportunity to talk to Michael Drum, who was a documentarian on... Tommy's life. He has some documentaries on uh, YouTube and he's an archivist of things. He's going to give us a detailed look at Tommy's life. If you're looking for a five minute overshoot of Tommy Bow and this is not it. This is an in-depth deep dive into Tommy's life. Uh, and it's, uh, we've already got three episodes recorded. So anyway, I hope you enjoy as we talk to, uh, Round Guy and I talk to uh, Michael Drum, uh, a friend of Tommy's, about his life, and it's a very interesting and deep dive into it. Thank you guys for listening. Let's go. All right, welcome back to Round Guy, the podcast. We're uh, going to talk about today, Iowa's greatest ever guitar player, Tommy Boland. Uh, I have on the phone with us uh, Steve Pilchin, the round guy, as well as Michael Drum, the the uh, archivist of the Tommy Bolin uh, uh, history and and uh, welcome to the program, Michael.
1: Hey, my pleasure to be here with you guys. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Michael, we're uh, tickled to learn more about Iowa's most famous uh, uh, guitarist, Tommy Bolin. Uh, start off with telling us. Uh, The early years, where he was born, where he's from, and then how he got into music and became legendary amongst uh, other guitar players.
1: Yeah, and it all started
2: August 1st,
1: 1951 in Sioux City. He was the firstborn son of Rich and Barb Boland. Rich came from Swedish ancestry, and Barb came from a Syrian Lebanese background. And of course, their ancestors, Barb's ancestors, actually moved, moved to Kearney, Nebraska. And Rich's, I believe, found their way to Sioux City, as did Barb. And, you know, it was 1951, it was the baby boom, the war had ended, and Mania was all about having kids, and Barb was a good, practicing Catholic, a very, very compassionate, loving, perfect, unconditional loving kind of mother, the kind of mother I wish I had had. Not that my mother was bad, but I mean, Barb was so, so connected with her children, um, and just always having them feel like they were special. And that wound up being infused into Tommy's personality as the years went by. And Rich was a man from blue-collar background and didn't go to college, didn't have any kind of that education. And Sioux City, actually, the the tale kind of begins in the mid-1870s when the United States was finally being connected by rail lines. And it was 1869, I think, when the first rail line dropped down into Sioux City, and an enterprising capitalist started one of the first major meatpacking plants, actually in the United States. Rail enabled there to be more of a consumer-based way of handling food products. You could ship stuff somewhere versus having it be by horse-drawn You know, way of doing things, which was so slow. So in the mid-1800s, there started to be these big meatpacking plants. The cattle could be brought in to a central location. It could then be slaughtered and processed and turned into consumable meat products and then shipped back out. And so Sioux City was one of the first, probably the first place in Iowa. It became the main place in Iowa for that. The rail hub became enormous. And so that meant a lot of people who needed work, people who didn't have necessarily high education were just working folk, salt of the earth, would move to Sioux City because they could find a job there. And it wound up pulling a lot of people there because there wound up being so many jobs to support, in fact, the slaughterhouses. And that plays a couple of different roles in Tommy's life. But the most immediate one was that's where his dad worked. That was, he said that was his job. He would never call it his career. But that was his job. And in fact, working in meatpacking plants year after year after year is not one of the better, more romantic jobs you can have. So when uh, Tommy was born, they knew that on on Mom's side, there was a, a man back in Lebanon who had an extreme musical talent, you know, had a DNA gift, had that magic gift. You know, the true geniuses in music, people who get acknowledged as geniuses, and there's a number of factors which leads up to somebody being seen as a genius. But the first one you have to have is that DNA piece. Somehow it got passed along and planted inside of Tommy. So, in short order, Rich was like, knew he did not want his son and then his future other sons to follow in his footsteps. He understood that these jobs were a means to an end, but by golly, if I'm going to have, if we're going to have kids, they're not going to do that. So, Tommy gets to be about four years old, and all of a sudden, there's about four or five national live variety shows on TV, and they always featured all this music, live music, and be the classics, the standards, but then as certain rock and roll acts started to pop up, and the kids were excited about it, all these shows were feature them. And the very first one to really get featured on all of these shows was Elvis. And it started in 1956. And again, all these shows bombed on to Elvis story. He was on each one multiple times. Of course, that Sullivan was one of them. Milton Berle had a show. There were a variety of them. And the Bolins had gotten a TV right or pretty much right away. And that's the same year I was born. So 1951 was kind of the year when TV became a thing that people would have in their houses. It really hadn't existed, and they had finally gotten cheap enough that almost everybody could buy one. And it would be in the living room, and it would be the focus. And every Saturday night, there would be these variety shows. So Rich got hip to Elvis himself, and he had heard about Vernon Presley and that Vernon was extremely blue collar they were ex- they were poor and and then Rich heard about how Vernon had really leaned into the whole thing with Elvis to support him in, in developing a music career and Rich went that's it right there and then Elvis went out uh, in the spring of 56 on his first major concert tour where they were playing, you know, like 5,000-seat, 8,000-seat coliseums. And in fact, what that was, was probably the first major rock and roll tour ever, literally. And Elvis, in May of that year, he came to Sioux City and he never came again. And Tommy was four years and nine months old. Totally impressionable, you know, from a developmental basis. That's your, by the time, once you get between zero and five is when you're like a sponge. Everything really affects you, good and bad. And so they go to the show, we're sold out, all the newspapers, all the media covering it. This is like an incredible event, Elvis Presley in Sioux city. And so Rich takes Tommy to that. And imagine being four years and nine months old, dad has been already preparing you. You've been watching him on television. And this is the beginning where Elvis was just up there swiveling his hips and being the king of rock and roll. And everybody's going completely insane. And this is Tommy's first live concert ever. Of the first Elvis major tour ever, the only time he ever came to Sioux City. So his mind was blown. There's a famous picture of him that I'm sure Dad took with him with a like a ukulele around his neck, posing like Elvis. And just shortly thereafter, that concert. And they had these talent shows. And Tommy went and basically lip-sync, pantomimed to an Elvis song and just slayed him. But he came in second. And he was really kind of upset about that. But Dad was, like, off and running. Unlike most parents from that era who were, like, afraid of rock and roll and they would do everything they could to dissuade their kids, it was the complete opposite in Tommy's house. And Rich was kind of like, this is what you are going to do. You are going to become Elvis, or a star like Elvis. And so here he had the DNA piece, which has now been well-established. And all of a sudden, he has the most mind-blowing exposure at the youngest age possible to the most exciting live concert tour that up till that point had ever occurred. <laughs> if you think about all that, it's it's pretty amazing. And of course, he just became obsessed with music. And Dad supported it in every way. He bought him a drum kit. He bought him an organ. He bought him a guitar. And this was like the thing. He was going to become a musician. He was going to pursue that. And Dad was just like, the number one cheerleader. And meanwhile, here's Mom just being unconditionally loving whatever needs to happen. She's there for Tommy. And that gave him what wound up happening from all that. He developed a determination. And in writing this manuscript, I went back, and the first place I wanted to start was, what are the ingredients of the genius? And they really are all those things that are having the DNA gift, having a parent who's obsessed about supporting you in that and it's having some kind of incredible experience early on. The classical masters, of course, wound up, you know, Mozart would be four years old playing in front of probably church, you know, church, you because know, a lot of the music back then was kind of went through the churches and whatnot, but he was being pushed into that world early on. And then the people who really get labeled a genius, is because they wind up being determined. I'm going to do that. When the, the light bulb needs to go off in that person. Dad can be pushing them. They can have the talent. They can have those experiences. But the light bulb has to go off to where somebody believes, you know what? I really am good. I'm going to do this. And that's what happened to Tommy. And his brother Johnny, who's also a musician and a drummer, who's two and a half years younger, he's shared stories about how Rich would be going, you're going to be the best. You are the best. You're going to be number one. You're going to the top. And Tommy would be going, yep. And Johnny would be rolling his eyes. Sure. So there's a little difference between... Tommy and Johnny from an early age even though Johnny's a great musician all that but Tommy bought bought it he owned yep I am that good and with Mom's love he was confident he had a certain confidence and so he got engaged with other kids his age early on there was a store and I'm trying to remember the name um uh, boy no, coming in a second. there was a well-known store in Sioux City that sold instruments at sheet music. and everybody who was into music, any of the professional musicians would obviously go there. But any kids who were really into music would gather there and I, I should remember the name anyway, it was kind of the central focal point where people would meet each other. young kids who were way into music, they would just go there and bump into other kids who maybe were looking at a guitar or whatever. So they they would wind up networking with other kids who were interested enough to hang out there. So at like 12 years old, Tommy was already doing that, and he met a couple of people right away who were also really, really focused on wanting to do music. And one was John Bartle, who was 11 months older than Tommy, and he was also a guitar player. And Russell Bizet, who was uh, African-American, and because of the meatpacking plants, Sioux City had a black population. There was about a thousand African-Americans who lived in Sioux City because of those jobs. And Russell's grandfather had been in Count Basie's orchestra, as a trumpet player, he was from New Orleans originally. And he had moved with his wife to Sioux City and started, you know, had his family and then his son gave birth to Russell and a a few other brothers and Russell really gravitated to, to the drums. And so off of meeting each other, there was a kid named Clark Kellogg, I believe, in Sioux City. He was a white boy. He was about 15, but he had become obsessed African-American black culture. And he had built up an incredible collection of blues albums of all the legacy great blues artists, you know, the, the, the real-life blues artists out of the South, out of Chicago. And he had this incredible collection. So Russell, Tommy, and John would go over to his house all the time and have these deep listening sessions where they would just play this full range of all these legendary blues musicians. And they all just got obsessed with the blues at 12 years old. So anyway, Russell's grandfather had a jazz club called the Seven Eleven Club, which was, in the part of town that had more of the black population in it. And it was really just primarily for African-Americans, because back back then, everything was pretty segregated, even if there wasn't official laws about it. And so the club was pretty much a black jazz club in Sioux City. Now, there weren't many of those in Iowa. There were some, but it was not common. But since he had been in Count Basie's orchestra, He knew how to get in touch and book certain blues and jazz artists to come play there. So there was a circuit and Sioux City. Omaha was a big stop. Obviously, Chicago was a stop. Omaha was a stop. And because of Russell's grandfather, Sioux City was on that loop. And so on Sunday nights... Well, Russell's grandfather was was a real mentor kind of a guy. He wanted to support any musician who popped up that he noticed who he thought had something going on. He would want to help him. He would just want to be like a, a mentor figure for people. And so at 12 years old, on Sunday night, they would have a special night where they would let Tommy and Russell come in to jam, and otherwise, you know, Monday through Saturday they weren't letting twelve-year-olds in because it was a black jazz club, and and here's African Americans who have kind of been traumatized their whole life because they're black. Then they're working in the meatpacking plants, which is also kind of traumatic. So people were blowing off steam, tons of drinking, tons of alcoholism, heroin usage. Prostitution, cigarettes—you know—all the vices were part of uh, the African American community. You know, not every, not all blacks were into that. Some were much more—you know—were more church-going and really kept their act together in that regard. But there was certainly always in black communities the kind of culture that a jazz club would represent, and so. Tommy and Russell started jamming there. And immediately, the music is so evocative. They were just jamming the blues. No original music. They weren't doing rock and roll. It was pure and simply the blues. And Russell's grandfather, who, again, was in or he'd be back in his office. All of a sudden, he would just kind of be caught by the music. And he would pick up his trumpet. And in second-line New Orleans tradition, he would just start playing as he walked out of his office towards where they were jamming. And so that that is part of Tommy's narrative. It's not never been told. Somehow, in all the stories about Tommy and Sue City, that's not in any of them. Because, and I judge, it's because it was, had a black element, too. That's just my own judgment so anyway between 12 and 13 Russell who I did a four-hour session with he said well we might, I think we might have played there like every Sunday for a couple of years I said a hundred times <laughs> and he goes it could be yeah." pretty amazing so uh, and so any of these kids who actually had developed chops there was already this whole thing, because the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan when Tommy was 12 and a half. Right when he was doing all this blues stuff, which he was also propelled by the Elvis experience. And then, you know, February 1964, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan. And everybody from my generation saw that. And almost every musician I know from that generation says that's why they got into music. And of course, Tommy was watching. And so was everybody else. And all of a sudden, there was this explosion of bands. And that was one of the legacies of the Beatles. All of a sudden, everybody formed a band. Every 13-year-old kid formed a band. And that certainly happened in Sioux City also. And so there began this whole thing of dances... And then flatbed trucks would set up outside different venues downtown and in different places. And people found that they could, you know, have a little business. And bands were in demand. And so Tommy immediately got into the the Sioux City and Denny and the Triumphs. Might have been the first band. And all these bands had somebody... in the band or their father or somebody who who had a clue about trying to get a gig book the band and there was a strong demand for bands because of the whole mania, and and so Tommy got into he was in a series of three bands and could get booked, and he was like the youngest kid in the band he was shorter than everybody everybody was like a year and a half older than he was and at first he was like, there'd be a jam session, like at 12, 13 years old. And he would go. And kids who were maybe a year and a half older than him, you know, and conform a jam session. It's kind of, well, who do you know? Who's getting, the, who's getting on stage? Who's going to get to do the next solo? And he was kind of getting elbowed out of the way because he was small and young. But he already was so amazing. That that only lasted a very short period of time, and pretty soon anybody who had the booking chops to try to have some kind of gigs would want Tommy in their band, and and so he was getting paid money, not a lot, but like getting paid money, as was Russell, John, and a number of other kids at 13 years old, (laughs) because there was such a demand for live bands at that time. And so, a very compressed period of time, he wound up being in that band, then he wound up uh, the best-known band he was in, Sioux City was Patch of Blue, that the Larvik Brothers famously had. And again, initially, since Tommy was just decided to be in a band, have gigs, be making some money. He wasn't the band leader. is kind of what it boils down to. And, um, and so at all these bands, they wanted to follow the pattern. of How do you come across a little more respectable? So they all wore suits, you know, kind of like what the Beatles did initially, you know. So they weren't too scary. And he wound up having dozens and dozens of gigs between 13, 13 and 15 uh, in these bands and obviously you're developing your chops because you're playing all the time and he was obsessed so he was playing all the time and he and Bartle would get together and they became the guitar brothers they would just get together all the time and as John told me uh, this year It was all about jazz for them. They would get together and try to play all these jazz standards, learn the licks, figure out the chords, figure out the fingering, and that's what they were obsessed with. Let's learn, girl, from Ipanema. Let's learn, you know, whatever jazz standards were at that time. And so Tommy was steeped in the blues, steeped in jazz, and then in these vocal cover band that were playing all the rock hits, you know, for parties, dances, whatever. And so he wound up having a vocabulary of all those kinds of music. And again, because of the DNA piece and how obsessed he was and how hard he was working, he he developed an incredible ear. He never learned how to read music. He could hear something one time and play it. And this caught everybody's attention immediately. Like, wait a minute. What? Because nobody else had that. Nobody else was a genius like he was. And so everybody was just like, wow, he can play anything. And, of course, the bands that were getting booked, they were all playing the rock hits of the day for, you know, and he wasn't, and since Elvis had been that early inspiration, he pretty early on didn't really think he wanted to be a jazz musician. He just was a jazz musician. <laughs> it's like he didn't have to have a goal; he just was. But but you could see once the Beatles blew up, and once all these cover bands got going, it was pretty obvious that. rock music was going to be the path to where you could make money. And so while he had all these other chops, and now for people who are really into Tommy and people who listen to him, one of the things he was known for was being an emotional player or his way of playing, his style. First of all, he didn't sound like anybody else. Nobody's ever sounded like Tommy. Had a completely unique way of playing the guitar. But part of what came through is that emotion that he touched people's hearts because the way he could play the guitar had this deep emotional quality to it. And where did that start? With the blues. And when I finally heard all this, it all made complete sense. And so... Um, so then
0: by yeah, the, uh... hey, I don't mean to cut in on you, but we're running up against a break. Uh, you've been listening to uh you've been listening to Round Guy the podcast. We're talking to Mike Drum about Tommy Boland He's a Tommy Bolin archivist. This is the end of part one, but we will shortly begin in part two. I'll play a little I can just go on and on. Oh, yeah. I've
1: seen that. But the fakers kind of a switch, a shift because of the whole hippie
0: thing. Welcome back true. to Round Guy the Podcast as we do part two of Tommy Bolin, Iowa's greatest guitar player. We've gone up to the Patch of Blue part. We're back on the phone with Tommy Bolin archivist Michael Drum, and YouTube documentarian uh we're also on the phone with steve the round guy uh take over steve
2: michael drum on the line with us uh we're tickled to have him as our guest because we're talking about one of our own here in iowa tommy bolin uh who left us far too soon and uh and yet left us with a legacy of uh just historic music and and uh Michael, we, we uh, are in the second part of this interview, and, and as I said, I'm learning more and more as our, our listeners. Uh, let's take up where we left off, whereby you were kind of getting to where Tommy was in his teenage years, still v- devoting much of his music to jazz, but, but on the verge of breaking out into a variety of different uh, uh, guitar genres. Uh Pick up where you left off and and talk about Tommy in the teenage years, how he got a little more involved, left home and traveled and uh, gave music uh, his life. Well, so as I was talking before, the gift
1: he had and his ability to just hear and play anything and at this point become obvious. And so anybody who had a band of any value um, wanted to have Tommy in their band because he could just play a decisively good role in it. And so we get to, um, like, when he's 50, he turns 15 in 1966 and he's in Patch Blue and they've been getting lots of gigs. And fifty six going into early 67, there started to be a revolution happening across the United States that also did manifest in Sioux city. And that would have been, you know, generically called the hippie era. And part of what the hippie era had in it was, you know, smoking pot and taking LSD, And that also found its way in Sioux city. There was, um, it was a particular store again, forgive me for not remembering the name, but it was kind of a counterculture headquarters, a rallying point. And so Tommy started to, you know, step into this kind of counterculture lifestyle. And because of his father's support of him and his mother's unconditional love, he had been completely convinced that music was going to be his thing. And as he then started playing in public, everybody, he was getting nothing but positive reinforcement. He was that good. And so as a 14, 15 year old, all those ingredients are there. What are you into doing? You're into music. That's what you want to do. And so he never became a serious student but of course everybody went to school and had your peer group and did your thing. But music was going to be his deal. That was his only goal was I'm going to do music. And so as the spring happens, the whole rock and roll, the spring of 67, all of a sudden the the whole English scene and other bands are coming along Where there's a little bit more focus on the guitar on loud music on it being more in your face kind of music and he winds up uh, kind of starting to play louder in Patch of Blue and all of a sudden he's not manifesting as just the, the young kid team player anymore he's starting to have a little bit more headstrongness about what he wants to do and that became kind of the controversial because the Larvix it was their band and they were the ones that had all the connections for the gigs. And so um, I believe it was that spring of sixty seven where they came over to the bowl and households and Johnny remembers this. And they went into Tommy's bedroom with Tommy and Johnny stayed out and then they come walking out. And they leave, and Johnny goes, they just fired me for playing too loud. Um, and so um, then something really incredible happened. August of 1967, it was the United States release of Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. And Tommy was like a fly to shit when that album came out. And really what Jimmy personified with the way he visually presented himself, it was kind of the outrageous way he made guitar the star. And it just blew Tommy's mind. And what it really spoke of was Jimmy showed everybody how to be free. You know, not wearing a suit, not just playing by the rules, but you could go outside of all that. And it was so exciting to him that he just immediately learned a number of songs from, from the album, including Purple Haze, which kind of became a signature, but, but only for about a year. And then after she left and came to Denver, then he never played it again. Nobody, I never heard, nobody ever heard him play it except the people from that one window of time. And so he then, there were a lot of talent shows going on at that time. And he wound up putting his first band together, which only lasted about a month and didn't really ever have a live gigging thing, but it was more for these talent shows. You know, a lot of talent shows, could you win, win a prize and you know get a little bit of momentum? Well, he put a group together that doesn't show up in any of the narratives about Tommy, called Harlem's Children. And it was Tommy and three African-American musicians from the Sioux City scene. And he famously had a pair of Carnaby Street Madras pants and some shirts like that. And in the bands he had been in, forget it. You're not going to wear anything like that. you got to wear the suit. And everybody has to have matching suits. So Harlem's children did about by two or three of these shows, there's no record of any of it. And this is all from the old histories I did with Johnny, who knew all about it. But again, if you go back and Google Tommy's history, this is not even in there at all. But it was because of Hendrix. It was completely because of Hendrix. that he then did that. So, So now at this point, everybody's starting to grow their hair. And Central High in Sioux City, the administration's just freaking out. It's the fall of 1967. And LSD's popping up, smoking pot's popping up, growing your hair's popping up. And Sioux City, as many places, was very conservative. And the school administration's like, what the fuck are we going to do? Although I'm sure they weren't saying it that way. But they were like, how do we stop this? How do we nip this in the bud? Oh, my God. And so here's Tommy, fresh from having become (laughs) hendrikized in August, goes to school in the fall, and they immediately pinpoint him as a target. We're going to make an example of Tommy. So they had this dress code, which had a thing about how long your hair could be. Okay, you're suspended. But you have to cut your hair to such and such a length for us to let you back in. And he was obviously not happy about this, but he did it. He cut it to exactly the length they said. And it goes back, and they go, that's not good enough. So again, the point wasn't so much about how long is your hair. I believe it was more about making a point that this whole counterculture thing was not going to be acceptable. And so at that point, they didn't let him back in. He continued to be suspended. And musician Brad Miller had been in Patch of Blue previously. He had had left for Denver already. And Tommy at that point was like, well, what the the hell am I going to do? You know? At this point in time, Sioux City became completely irrelevant to him. And he was like, and Brad communicated to Tommy, hey, I'm in Denver. It's a pretty happening scene here in Denver. And Denver, you know, always represented kind of the, the mecca for a lot of the, you know, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, Wyoming, North, South Dakota. If people wanted to go to a big city, they would go to Denver. And so his parents were like, we bless you to go to Denver. You, you go ahead, if you have to go, go. You know we're here. You know we love you. Go ahead. So he heads to Denver. I believe it was a bus, caught a bus, and gets to Denver. And within 30 days of coming to Denver, he meets three people who would be in his world for the rest of his life. One was Jeff Cook, who became a primary lyricist for Tommy, and he had his own band at that point called Crosstown Bus. And he, also at 12 years old, was fanatically listening to blues albums. Meets him because their band is in downtown Denver rehearsing in a basement. Tommy's downtown and he puts it's snowing out. He has his guitar. And he hears this music coming. He goes to the door and he's pounding on the door, pounding on the door. And they're like, What is that noise? And they finally, Hey, can I come in and jam with you guys? Like, Who the hell are you? You know, he's like, Looks like he's a kid. And he was so insistent and he was so nice that Jeff said, Okay, come on in. And the band already had a guitar player, bass player, drummer, singer. And he here he plugs in and he immediately plays Purple Haze. And everybody has a coma, goes into a coma immediately. What the fuck? And this was within two months of that song being plastered on every, everywhere. I mean, it was, it had become a phenomenon and he was blowing everybody's mind completely. So, the next day, this band that had a booking agent, fired their guitar player and renamed themselves American Standard. And he, as soon as he met Jeff, he was in a band in Denver that had traction. At the very same time, Barry Fay, who became the most legendary concert promoter, one of the most legendary in the United States history, for a number of reasons. He had gotten to Denver the year before, and he wanted... He found out about... Chet Helms out in San Francisco, who had a production company called Family Dog Productions, and they were managing Big Brother in the Holding Company with Janice Joplin, and they were putting on shows at the Avalon Ballroom with all the cream of the crop of all those late 60s bands and all as well as blues artists, legacy blues acts, that whole thing back in the late 60s where the counterculture music fans embraced all that stuff. They embraced blues, they embraced jazz, and Helms was booking all that stuff. So Barry, one thing led to another, and he pitched the idea that they would open a club in Denver called The Family Dog in partnership with Chet Helms already knew all these managers and booking agents, Barry didn't really know any of them, but Barry had done a little bit of concert promoting he knew he, that's what he wanted to do and so simultaneously with Tommy getting to Denver and meeting Jeff all of a sudden, instantly first time he jams with anybody he's in the band <laughs> um, and just again, everybody was just stunned um, so American Standard got in front of Barry Faye because they had a booking and Barry immediately saw wow these guys are great because at 16 Tommy 16 and 3 months old they show up and jam purple haze (laughs) it's like stunning So they immediately got booked into the family dog on the bill opening act for a number of of some of these legacy San Francisco era type groups. And and immediately Tommy had gone from Sioux City where he was being told to, you're fired because you're playing too loud. And within six months, (laughs) in the middle of the very first ultra-hip music thing that happened in Denver. But the Denver police were completely freaked out and they started harassing the club and the bands that played there like crazy. Because Denver was a larger version kind of of what Sioux City was like back then. Pretty conservative. Um, But part of what Chet Helms would help do would be to book some of these blues legends. Uh, He was kind of the conduit for the talent that would play at the Family Dog. And and in doing this with Jeff Cook, he related that, that, um, I believe it was Big Brother played at the opening night, but then they played next spring, or next June as well. And... um, And that Howlin' Wolf was put on the bill. And Howlin' Wolf, a lot of those blues people, they would get booked, Chuck Berry, but they wouldn't travel with a band because they wanted to make most of the money. Um, So, um, um, it's okay, I got, something just happened in the house, it's okay, so Jeff tells the story about um, that they're told to come down to the family. You're going to be the backup band for Howlin' Wolf. And so they're there early in the afternoon hanging out. And in walks this imposing African-American man with a starched kind of white shirt on janitor green pants. And the big chunk of keys hanging from the chain off of his belt. And they see this guy come in and they go, Oh, is this the janitor? And then Howlin' Wolf walks up and goes, where's the band? Are you guys the band? And they get up and first, the way Jeff described is the first song, Howlin' Wolf got this look on his face like, uh, huh? Is Tommy looks like he's fifteen, and by the fifth song, Holland Wolf's jaw is on the ground, and that was the very first time that Tommy had backed up the blues legend. It wasn't the last, and you know, just stunned. Everybody was just st- Holland Wolf was stunned. The <laughs> kid's just sixteen years old. So anyway, um, some February, Barry Fay had realized pretty quick that through booking acts at The Family Dog, which held maybe 800 people at the most, that he was now making contacts with all these bands' managers and booking agents. And he was like, wow, I should try booking some big concerts. And so he books Jimi Hendrix the headline on February 14th, 1968 at Regis College Fieldhouse towards about 6,000 people. And Barry was just beginning his career of being a big promoter. So he wanted to pull out all the stops and try to game curry with all the artists and give them the best time they could. So Barry arranged for the family dog to be the location of a private after-show party for Jimmy, not open to the public, just where he could come, hang out, chill, do whatever he wanted, and jam. And who did they make sure was there to jam with Jimmy? Tommy. This is also not well-known, but it does show up in a number of different... It did happen. And so they, and the reports are that Jimmy played bass Well, he would have then stood there being blown away by Tommy. And so that's how much of an impression Tommy had made because Barry Faye wanted to curry favor with Jimi Hendrix. Hey, I'll throw you a post-show party. And hey, I've got some musicians you can jam with. And that Tommy was that person. And what would that have done for Tommy's confidence? You know? But then a month later, not a month later, but come July, Family Dog closed. And they wound up doing some other shows there. There was a famous show that didn't happen. That was two months before a Jimi Hendrix thing. It was December 20th. Otis Redding was booked to play the family dog. He died in the plane crash 10 days earlier. And that's when sitting on the dock of the bay was just all over radio. It was his breakthrough hit. And they had booked him at the family dog. The opening act, American Standard, it was Tommy. Show never happened. There's a poster. They made a poster, and you can find that online. It, it kind of disappeared for a while, but it does exist. It's online. Earl's Reading, American Standard, Denver Family Dog Show. It's a really cool poster. That was part of what the Family Dog did. They tapped into all those great San Francisco poster artists mm-hmm. and uh, had a lot of amazing posters. So that was Tommy's pedigree right out of the box. And the other person who he met right away. Dave Brown, who had three brothers. He was one of three brothers, Dave, Rick, and Alan Brown. Dave was a great guitar player. And they had a band called Hannigan's Greenhouse that had three-part brother harmonies right when the Bee Gees were first coming out. and The thing they always said about the Bee Gees is, oh, they had the greatest three-part brother harmonies. You can't have harmonies any better than if it's three brothers. But they had quite a little was going on in Denver. And American Standard actually opened for Hannigan's Greenhouse, House. But Dave Brown immediately got that Tommy was from another planet. And he wound up becoming his guitar tech for the rest of his life. He gave up his own musical career. Even though people were already going, wow, that Hannigan's Greenhouse
2: is great.
1: He just gave up his own career for Tommy. So, um, summer of 68 hit, and the family dog closed because they'd been harassed by the Denver police all the time. And Faye had kind of transitioned into, you know what? I can just book these larger concerts. They're one-off events. It'll be harder for the police to target them. And they just closed the family dog completely. And and Tommy had gotten wind that Lonnie Mack, I don't know how this happened, I still haven't figured that out, but that Lonnie Mack needed a backup band. He was going to be doing some gigs in the Cincinnati area in the Midwest. And so Tommy at that point left Denver and went to Cincinnati and did these gigs with Lonnie Mack, but nothing long-term came of it while he was there he met John Ferris who was this gifted uh, keyboard player and saxophone player who was a real jazz great musician way out kind of brilliant guy himself and so he and Tommy then headed back to Denver and that's when they got back And one thing led to another, and the group Zephyr formed, which was then going to be Tommy's first band of substance that really uh, made a lot of noise, especially up in Boulder. So that's kind of, um, that's, you know, what happened as soon as he left Sioux City. It's like, should he have left Sioux City? You know, all that happened within a month. He met Jeff Cook was instantly in a band that had a booking agent, immediately doing gigs, immediately getting plugged into this brand new ultra hip club, the first of its kind ever in Colorado, and meeting the person who would give up his own band to support Tommy as his guitar tech. I mean, it's just unbelievable that. And I'm I'm the person, I put all that together and realized, wow, that was all in the first 30 days. And again, all three of those people wound up playing a significant role in Tommy's life up until the night he died. Dave Brown was there. Jeff was not in the band, he wasn't touring with him, but he was still writing lyrics for him. And a lot of his most evocative songs Jeff wrote the lyrics for, but Jeff always knew how to dial it in to where it was—they were appropriate for Tommy. And Tommy would then, you know, look at the lyrics and maybe want to edit them a little bit, or say this, or say that, or whatever. So even though Tommy wasn't writing all the lyrics, they wound up reflecting Tommy. It was almost as if he was—it was kind of the way Elton John and Bernie Taupin were, where Bernie just had a way of writing lyrics were Elton sounded like they were Elton's. A lot of people didn't really understand that Elton never wrote any lyrics. But Tommy, as it turns out, did become a lyricist and wound up becoming a very personal, evocative lyricist himself, Um, unlike Elton John. As it turns out, Tommy wound up being able to do everything. He went so far beyond just being, quote-unquote, a guitar player. He became an incredible, prolific composer. And one of the things about Hendrix before he died was there were articles about how he was frustrated with coming up with new material. And a number of his breakout songs have been cover songs. Tommy had never had an issue with being able to write. He was like a water fountain. He, he just... Melodies just came out and he wrote hundreds of songs. But then he had to develop himself as a singer. And by the time he was doing Private Eyes, his last album, I interviewed Dennis Mackay at length, co-produced the album with him. He said it would take one, two, three takes for him to have the perfect vocal, utterly on key, utterly in pitch, perfect. But everything he did could do perfectly and he also became an incredible producer that he knew what he wanted to do so he had the whole package by the end amazing producer
2: hey i
0: don't mean to cut in here buddy but we're running up against time this has been uh we're talking to michael bloom or michael drum who's uh uh was a friend of tommy's and uh We've done documentaries on him. This is part two. We're up to about 1968. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll have part three in just a minute. Score
1: cool, on Tommy. I think I'm going to a master.
0: Welcome up. back to Round Guy the Podcast as we continue our coverage of Tommy Bowen. We're with Michael Drum. Well, we are up to about 1968. Uh, Tommy's had an exciting first 30 days uh, opening for Howlin Wolf, uh, playing with Jimi Hendrix. Uh, things are really starting to take off. Uh, t- take it from there, Michael. So as I said, that he had uh, the family
1: dog, which was really huge coincidence that when Tommy arrived in Denver, that that club had just opened and Barry Fay had partnered with Chet Helms, who was the second most legendary music impresario in San Francisco history next to Bill Graham, and that Chet had helped steer all these amazing groups to the Denver Family Dog, and that as soon as American Standard existed, which took one time of Sonny playing Purple Haze, they were brought to Barry's attention immediately, and he immediately embraced them as a as an opening act and as a band that could back up some of the like a Howlin' Wolf who wasn't touring with the band because he wanted to pocket all the money, so they would get a local group to to do it almost for free. And Tommy had blown his mind completely. But by July, the club closed, and that amazing opportunity was over. And Tommy had gotten wind about an opportunity to play with Ronnie Mack back in the Cincinnati area. And so he went back there, and that only lasted a short period of time, but while he was there, he met this amazing keyboard player and saxophonist and flute player, John Ferris, who was kind of this bohemian jazz musician, brilliant guy. So they then immediately glommed onto each other, and they came back to Denver and, in short order, got word, of, got up to Boulder and. Uh, got hooked up with uh, Candy and David Givens. Candy being a singer who's been compared to in a way to Janis Joplin but she actually had her own style. But back then a, a woman who was a strong singer usually got compared to Janis Joplin. And David was a very talented guitarist and bass player. And immediately people, the thing about Tommy is everybody got hip to him instantly. <laughs> it was just like, light a match and there you go. And so it only took a, a short period of time. Well, actually, Kenny Ken and David had been in a group up in Aspen, and, and they played on a bill with American Standard. That's how they first saw Tommy, and they were blown away. But Tommy was distracted, and they didn't really connect personally. But then once he came back, I was up in Boulder and they got hooked up again with them because they were like wanting to form a new group. And they instantly put Zephyr together, which was like a blues, rock, jazz, psychedelic, amazing group. And, um, and I first saw, that's where I first saw Tommy It was uh, October, 1969 when they played on the university of Colorado campus and it just blew my mind. So anyway, Barry Faye, who already knew Tommy, some of these other people up in Boulder who were into holding concerts and booking concerts because there was this whole scene around wanting to book concerts. And so, Barry was immediately now becoming the main concert promoter and he was very competitive. He didn't want any competition. He was like a little bit mafia-like in you how he approached things. And Zephyr needed a manager because they were clueless and Barry didn't know anything about managing but he did have contacts in the booking and and, uh, promotion area and then he could network he was good at networking and he was able to help immediately plug them into some national gigs including all the first ones was at Chet Helms Avalon out in San Francisco so in short order, they wound up getting a record deal, and they did the first Zephyr album. But they also then continued to get booked on various festivals because there were starting to be these festivals, before, like leading up to Woodstock and whatnot. that. That whole nineteen sixty nine, the, the year of the festival, right? And Woodstock was just the biggest part of them, but there were lots of. Them. And so Zephyr was getting booked onto these kinds of festivals and also being an opening act. And so Led Zeppelin, um, first American gig was in Denver in 1968 on a bill that Barry Fay had promoted. It was Vanilla Fudge and Spirit and they stuck Led Zeppelin on. Well, anyway, Zephyr wound up getting booked. Led Zeppelin, of course, caught fire immediately. And they got booked to open Led Zeppelin. Well, Jimmy Page, of course, famously was a great producer, and he had been in the London scene as a session guitar player for years, and been in the Yardbirds, and he really is the person who put Led Zeppelin together. It was his project, and he produced all their albums, right? Robert Plant was kind of like a partner, wrote lyrics, but it was really Jimmy's band in many ways. He was the Svengali. So this night comes where Zephyr's opening for Led Zeppelin, and Jimmy Page saw Tommy. And this is also another piece of narrative that's not known. And he went wild. It's like he shit in his pants. And he came bursting into their dressing room. Where's that guitar player? Where's that guitar player? He then got personally involved with his effort to try to help them. Because their first album, they weren't satisfied with how it got produced. And the producer was somebody who had been an engineer, but he really hadn't been a producer, Bill Halverson. And they weren't really happy with it. So they were like, they, they wanted to do something they didn't want to do that same process, but they had, none of them had ever recorded an album before. So Jimmy Page all of a sudden was like, you guys have to work with Eddie Kramer at Electric Lady Studios in New York, Jimmy is producer, and the chief engineer at Electric Lady. You, this is what you guys have to do. And so Jimmy hooks him up with Eddie, and Eddie's like, I can get you a deal with Warner Brothers. And their second album, going back to Colorado, was on Warner Brothers. And so Jimmy Page made that happen. He, he's the one who rang, said, call, do this. He personally got involved. And again, you can Google this to the cows at home. It's not out there. This is not out there. I just spoke to David Gibbons for five hours a week ago. Who was there. He's was one and he told me this story. And so they went with it, and that album was quite a bit more focused and together and dialed in. But Eddie Kramer at that point was distracted a bit. He was having a love affair with Carly Simon. And so he was all kind of caught up in that. And Part of being a producer is to really be engaged directly with the band, to be there a lot, to be sharing, going back and forth. And then right in the middle of doing the album, Eddie said, hey, Monday, Jimmy's going to fly in from London to jam with you guys. And the assumption is that we're going to roll tape. Jimmy died on Saturday. And this this is a true story. And they were going to roll tape. Jimmy owned the studio. And he was producing the Zephyr album. He was Jimmy's engineer producer. And if that had occurred, the point is that Jimmy had started getting into heroin. Um, And the Denver Pop Festival, which I know you brought up, yesterday it was a two months before Woodstock in Denver Barry Faye put out a festival a similar kind of format three days bunch of different bands and Jimmy was on that bill and evidently by then he had got engaged with heroin and that was the last show that Jimi Hendrix experience ever did and Mitch Mitchell and especially Noel Redding Noel started to feel like I'm important too and, and they were fighting all the time. And so and then Jimmy, from reports, was starting to, you know, have a heroin uh, engagement. that was then shifting how he was, and that that then all led up to that weekend where he never made it to New York. And if that had happened, but the counterpoint to that story was that they had to get out of their deal with ABC Records. Their first album was on this ABC probe, which was part of ABC, which was a pretty big label. And so they, Candy and David had a meeting with Jay Lasker, who was the legendary president of ABC. And Jay was like, you know what, I got a producer I want you to work with. And I, you know, I realized that you're not happy with how the first album went. But I've got somebody here I want you to work with him. This other person was sitting there in the office. And Candy and David were like, no, you know what? No. Jimmy Page has hooked us up with Eddie Kramer and, and we can get a deal with Warner Brothers. We want out of our deal. And Jay wasn't happy. I don't know what, what they had to do to deal, settle that. But the producer that was there was the mastermind of a major hit rock album that had just come out and gone to the top of the charts. James Gang Rides Again, Bill Simzik, who of course wound up producing all of Joe Walsh's breakthrough solo albums, Hotel California by the Eagles. And while Eddie Kramer had a pretty good career, Bill showed he knew how to work with an idiosyncratic unique rock artist and David Gibbons the other night in my talking to him said he made a mistake i <laughs> like David the what ifs are piled up to the ceiling here. so that's that's also not in the narrative that who became one of the most successful rock producers of the 70s was teed up to produce his effort and I can look at that myself and go, yeah, that was a mistake. But, you know, what do you know? Jimmy Page is the one going, you gotta do this. What are you gonna do? You know, I'm gonna follow that. So then, anyway, Zephyr, that, that album came out and it didn't quite get the momentum going that everybody was hoping for. And Tommy, at that point, was starting to, oh, feel like he had a different he wanted to pursue some other things but Cammie and David decided they had had switched to Bobby Berge as the drummer who was Tommy's friend from Sioux Falls and they decided they wanted to go back to the original Zephyr drummer Robbie Chamberlain and they set up a power play to get that to happen which David now looks back at and goes that was a mistake also and Tommy then quit he quit and this is like the late spring of 1971. And by then Zephyr was putting on just these mesmerizing concerts. But because this all went down that way, he quit. And that summer, "Intermounting Flame by the Mahavushnu Orchestra came out. The sub story of all this is that Tommy had spent time in and around Zephyr. In New York City, he had met on some of those festivals. The group Dreams, which was kind of a more artistic Chicago, had a drummer, Billy Cobb, who wound up being in the Mahavish New Orchestra, who then did the Spectrum album with Tommy. So Tommy, because he was in Zephyr, was starting to be noticed by really significant musicians. And he wound up having an entree to go to New York and to meet some of these jazz musicians, all of whom were completely blown away by him instantly. And he couldn't read music. And all these jazz guys are all reading charts. And he would be embraced, even though he wasn't formally trained. So, Mavish Orchestra had Jan Hammer was in it, who he had already... He and Billy Tom and Jan Hammer and Jeremy Steig had done a demo of a couple of songs at Electric's lady studios before the Mahavishnu New Orchestra album came out, which, of course, revolutionized electric guitar in a complex time signature-changed out there. Most amazing jazz fusion album ever was Intermountain Flame*. And that's, so that came out right at the time Tommy was leaving Zephyr. And so he formed his first solo band, and he called it Energy, which was named after an album Jeremy Steig had done with Jan Hammer. And then they did a song that Jan Hammer wrote called Downstretch, which if you listen to that, it's on you know, YouTube. We wound up putting that out on the archives. Sounds like the Vishnu Orchestra. So the first iteration of energy didn't have a singer. And of course, the Vishnu Orchestra didn't have, they were all instrumental. So Tommy initially was basically trying to do the Mahavishnu Orchestra. But where McLaughlin had high-up major league management based out of New York and had a jazz pedigree and could get booked, Tommy was in Boulder and didn't have any of that. And he's trying for trying to get gigs in beer clubs, and so it didn't go over very well. and um, And Tommy wound up being the booking agent for Energy, and he would then try to find gigs everywhere, do whatever he could, and and, and then Energy would do the same thing. They would back up. Blues Legends. They backed up Big Mama Thornton. They backed up Chuck Berry. And then there was a stadium show at Folsom Stadium in Boulder who had It's a Beautiful Day, Poco, and uh, Albert Lee. I mean, Albert King. Albert King. And Albert had his own keyboard player, but uh, then energy backed him up. And people who were at that show, Stanley Sheldon was the bass player, the Tommy and Albert stood toe to toe, trading licks. And after the show, Albert went, "You got me." So again, uh, Tommy just continued to just blow everybody's mind, but energy just was sucking wind they couldn't make any money they couldn't get any momentum they did a number of demos one of which had Jeff Cook's song Dreamer on it which is on the teaser album but on the demo Jeff was singing and if I, when I listen to that song today it sounds like Journey five years later once they got Steve Perry the way they shifted gears and became a radio friendly rock band so Dreamer sounds like in 1972 and Tommy's playing the most perfectly appropriate, amazing solo, more of a pop rock. But the whole point was they couldn't get a record deal. And Barry Fay was their manager, and in retrospect, they you know, were stuck in Colorado, and Barry was the only person who had any conflicts. So at that point, they're broke. Joe Walsh, meanwhile, had moved to Boulder, being produced by Bill Simczyk. And he and Tommy immediately became friends. And they Tommy wound up opening for some local barnstorm shows, moved to some clubs. And James Gang had replaced Joe with Dominic Troiano and Roy Camp and they did an album called Straight Shooter, which was a complete stiff. As it used to say back in the day, it went straight in with the cutout pins. <laughs> And Joe, he had left the James game because the James game was basically owned by Jim Fox, the drummer. And that's why it was called the James game. So, you know, Joe's talking to Jim. And Jim's going, yeah, the album's stiff. Dominic doesn't really like playing live. And, uh, and, and Joe goes, I got somebody for you. Tommy Bolin, Joe Walsh. Arranged for Tommy to audition. Of course, it's not an audition. It's just, you're in. And they then uh, did James Gang Bang. And Tommy wrote the music to 90% of the songs on the record. Jeff Cook wrote lyrics to a bunch of them. He already had a lot of these songs already ready to go. He had a backlog of songs. And all of a sudden, he was in a straight-ahead rock band, rock format, trying to push the buttons of mainstream rock music. So it filtered through kind of the way the James Gang approached their music, which was very straightforward. And a lot of people who are into Tommy feel that that's one of the great albums, James Gang Bang. And it was the first time Tommy was teed up as the star rock guitar player in a band that in theory could get airplay. But right at the time that happened, he got a call from Billy Cobham, who had quit the Mob Orchestra because the music and the whole thing was so intense, he had to take a sabbatical. <laughs> but he got a deal with Atlantic Records to do a solo album. And four of the songs he wanted to have just a quartet and of course he had Jan Hammer who had been with him in the Mavish New Orchestra who had already done a demo with Tommy Billy and Jan and Tommy and Jeremy Steig had already done a demo and and then Billy had crossed paths with Leland Sklar who had also been in a band that saw Tommy back in the day, but Leland was then in the the section, which was a rock fusion band, and they went on tour with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. So the section opened for the Mahavishnu Orchestra, and there was Leland marveling at the most amazing band possible. He did videos last year about all this. And, And so Billy asks Leland to be the bass player, And asked Tommy to be the guitar player. And Leland had already met Tommy. But when Tommy walked in the studio on the Monday morning, Leland had no idea who the guitar player was going to be. My old buddy, Tommy. And so they did four songs. Billy had charts. He had all the music written out. Tommy couldn't read music. So Yon Hammer spent half a day just running through the, the compositions of Tommy. And Billy last year did a podcast with Nara to Michael Walden where he stops him in the middle of the interview and says, I need to talk about Spectrum. My inspiration was a kid named Boland. So all these years later, Billy Tom is still publicly going, he blew my mind. Billy's one of the most sophisticated musicians in contemporary music history. And that he did that last year. And tell me, i got that on the archives' Facebook page. That Billy Cobb was witnessing about the brilliance of Tommy all these years later. Because Tommy was a genius. He was a rare genius. This kid from Sioux City. Blue collars comes no advanced education, almost didn't, Almost took no music lessons at all. He's now got the top jazz musicians in the world going, he's hit. But by this point, Tommy's with Barry Fay as a manager. Barry is a gambling addict. And Barry wants cash flow. He wants, and, so, and Tommy wanted to be Elvis. So as with Sioux City, Tommy was going to focus more on trying to do something that had a rock basis. But he started developing the teaser album. And what he did with the teaser album was to merge it all together. He had straight-ahead rock songs on it, and he had some incredible jazz rock fusion instrumental tracks on there. And if anybody with a good ear, which is a lot of people who hear that album are just, continue to be just blown away by it. And guess who it sounded like? Nobody else. You can't listen to the, any of his music that he did himself. He never sounded derivative, he never sounded like he was copying somebody else. Yet, he put his own complete stamp on the arrangements, on the production style. When it came to his solo albums, he handpicked all the musicians to be on him. And they would famously not have to rehearse very much. He knew what he wanted. And he was so intuitive that they could just nail it. So in doing all those albums, Zephyr albums, the two James Gang albums, and then, of course, he got into Deep Purple. I think um, that's the next chapter of him Trying to become famous. You know, this whole thing is how do you kind of skip ahead? And Barry Say wasn't really the right manager. And so he got bored being in the James Gang and um, wound up quitting. He wanted to focus more on developing a teaser. So he moved from Boulder to Los Angeles and started developing demos for teaser. And then got to where he was ready to start doing proper recording of it. But by then, you know, there just wasn't any money. He wasn't making any money. And, and there, was, there was an artist development fund that Barry had got some other people to invest in. He wasn't spending his money that they had. But it was tough. You know, it was uh, kind of like when he joined the James game. He was you know, low on money. And so that's when Richie Blackmore told B-Purple to go fuck themselves because he didn't like the way that Glenn Hughes and his being added liked doing soul and funk-oriented music. Richie was, came from more of a classical side and he didn't like the idea of black-inspired music. And So he, he wound up really getting pissed off. And then I think... My assumption is that Deep Purple may have also had an ownership structure where where Richie wasn't really one of the owners. That's just an assumption I have. So that he quit, kind of like the way Joe Walsh quit, James Gang, and then he formed Rainbow, which was going to be finally his band rather than being in the kind of group structure that Deep Purple was. And meanwhile, they had become the third largest touring band in the world. And they had all these offers, huge money, and Richie just fucking quit. And so they're going, what the fuck are we going to do? The entire band had moved to Los Angeles. Deep Purple at that point was based in L.A. also so was Tommy.
0: Hey, we've and got was about a minute and fam- a half left.
1: So was famously that Tommy, Coverdale had heard Spectrum. They invited Tommy to come within 30 seconds as in all these other situations Tommy was in deep purple and then that kind of sets up what would be the last chapter
2: right
0: there well we've been talking with uh, with the documentarian and Tommy Bowen, Michael Drum uh, he's just been regaling us with amazing stories uh, he's taken us through uh the Spectrum album, and this, uh, and uh, the James Gang, and now we've gotten to the Deep pur- Purple era. So, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for being on today.
1: My pleasure. I love talking about Tommy, and uh, if you couldn't tell. And uh, I'm a pretty good storyteller, so I appreciate the opportunity
0: with you guys on this and get this story out there through your podcast series I appreciate it yes just letting a little music play here at the end teaser is my favorite song thanks for listening everybody
2: podcast along with Dave Johnson. Our guest today is Michael Drum. We've already spoken a little bit. We're breaking this uh, conversation into several parts because Michael is so knowledgeable. He is the archivist for uh, Iowa's favorite musician, but uh, unfortunately, maybe not the best known. We're talking about Tommy Bolin from Iowa in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's been with so many groups And we've enjoyed talking with Michael about uh, Tommy and the various bands he's been associated with and the career he had, albeit short-lived, unfortunately. Uh, Michael, where are we at in the conversation? Let's pick it up again. I can't wait to hear more about Tommy Bolin.
1: Yes, I've been kind of thinking about it. Off of episode three, we were kind of about ready to go into deep purple, but I've kind of thought that I should set up a, there's a couple of things I forgot since this has been all off the top of my head. And so I wanted to kind of just set up a little context to fill in a couple of blanks that would then lead up to the deep purple piece. So, um, yeah, it was back in, uh, the fall of 1967. Tommy had been born and raised in Sioux city, Iowa. And from the earliest of ages, um, He saw Elvis before he was five years old through his father's fanaticism, basically, that he did not want Tommy and then his next brother, Johnny, to ever, ever, ever follow in his footsteps of working in the meatpacking plants of Sioux City, which, of course, was a huge part of the the economic basis of Sioux City. And Rich worked there, you know, the whole time that he he and Barb were having the family. And quite frankly, it's a horrible job. It's it's a necessary job, but it's not exactly a soul-stirring occupation. In fact, it's kind of just the opposite. So Rich knew from the get-go he did not want his sons following up in his footsteps. So part of that, had him taking Tommy to that Elvis show in 1956 before Elvis was even five. And basically he was like, this is what you're going to do. You know, and back in those days, a lot of parents were scared about rock and roll and wanted to steer their kids in the opposite. But Rich had a unique uh, motivation of not wanting Tommy to be stuck, so to speak, doing what people did, a lot of people did in Sioux City. So he really was insistent upon this basically. It wasn't as if, hey, how about doing this? It was kinda like, This is what you're gonna do. And he did the things necessary to help Tommy have access to musical instruments and to and to just really focus on on that. So and Tommy's grandfather had the DNA gift, you know, the thing that some people, very small amount of people, but some people are born with the with the DNA to where your brain lobes actually support the ability to just kind of be a natural when it comes to music. But if you combine that with that kind of exposure to exciting music, that kind of background from the parents, kind of pushing you into it, that that is what enables somebody to really develop themselves. And the people who make it big, so to speak, wind up having their own determination that they're going to be determined to go ahead and try to really make something happen with music. So by the time Tommy was uh, 16, he had just turned 16 in the fall of 1967, he had that determination. He kn- and he also knew by then that he had something special. It wasn't just determination. It was based on data, in a sense, of him living his own life and having already manifested such an ability to just hear music, be amazing, pick up guitar, and just be able to just become a master of guitar in a very evocative and thrilling way. And a lot of that had to do with his exposure to both blues and jazz at an early age. And when you have that kind of brain... It's that you just are jazz because, you know, jazz is known for people's ability to improvise, to just start playing and great music will come out. And so he had what I would call a jazz brain. He just had that ability to improvise and in improvising. Basically, you've got melodies that can just come pouring out of you and go through your hands. And he, so he spent a lot of time practicing. He was in the bands he was in in Sioux City. And so he had tremendous opportunity between the ages of 12 and 16 to play the guitar a lot. Because he was so good that the groups he was in, who were who had members who knew how to get gigs, that he was able, between 12 and 16, be literally paid money you know not like a lot of money but he was in bands that were actually getting hired to come play dances uh, parties there were contests you could participate in so he just had lots of opportunities to play out in front of people and if you think about it nowadays you know how many 13 14 15 year olds are known for being in bands that are playing out. And so that was a unique time, too, because uh, the Beatles had had such a massive impact on everything that everybody wanted to be in the band. And all the kids were into the idea of all these bands that were out. So it was kind of an endless stream of events, parties, whatever, where where, uh, bands could get a chance to play. So by the time he got to be 16, he was pretty highly developed as far as his music goes. But Sioux City, you know, I would say about Sioux City that it's kind of parochial in the sense that it was a small town. It wasn't, it was a local area. It wasn't a pipeline to the big time. It was just what Sioux City was. And so while he got lots of opportunities, it didn't really support someone like him in going to the next step. And Brad Miller, who had been in Patch of Blue with Tommy, had already uh, left for Denver. And Tommy knew that Brad had left for Denver. And the fall of 67 came up again. And that's when Tommy was made an example of by the administration at Central High for his long hair, his free kind of becoming... You know, the whole hippie movement was just coming on, and Hendrix's album had just come out, and Tommy just was instantly into what Jimmy was doing. And not only was it super exciting from a guitar playing perspective, Jimmy also represented the idea of being free, personally free, free expression, breaking the rules, you know, the way he dressed, the way his hair was, the way he would light his guitar on fire, the way he would use feedback. He was breaking all the rules that had been kind of governing the music world at that point. And so Tommy just was totally into that. You know, he, The whole idea of being free and also that the guitar player could be the star. And, and Cream had just started You know, there were certain blues bands out there as well that Tommy had gotten into where the guitar played a very, very key role. But it wasn't until Jimmy that the idea that the guitar player was the star became a thing. And guess what? Tommy had already developed tremendous chops at the guitar. So he really stepped into that whole attitude um, and the confidence that he could pull that off. And he famously had some Madras pants, Connerby street, kind of pants. And, and right before he left Sioux city, he he had formed briefly a band that never got any notoriety, which was kind of his version of Jimi Hendrix experience. But there was one white guy, him and three black guys from Sioux city. And they did a few contests in the area, but they never were really a band that was going to get booked because again, The bands that were getting booked were the bands that were kind of playing the old-school approach to everything. But he just did it as an expression of how blown away he was by Hendrix. But then that fall, he immediately got suspended for his long hair. And even though he cut it, um, that wasn't really, it wasn't just that. It was that he was representing something that and the schools are all like, what the hell are we going to do? And they weren't saying it like that, but they wanted to figure out, how do we put the brakes on this whole counterculture thing? Well, of course, that was fruitless, but Tommy became a target of that. And so when they wouldn't let him back in, he decided, okay, I'm going to leave for Denver because Brad Miller was there. And Brad had said, hey, come on. And this is where the determination of Tommy first manifested, he was going to go to Denver. And even if he didn't really have much money in his pocket, he didn't know what he was going to do once he got there, but he was going to go from hell or high water because Sioux City had nothing to offer anymore. He was never really studious. He was never really into being a student. So when that all happened, his mother and father both said, you know, okay, we support the idea that you would go. Even though, you know, he's 16, (laughs) he just turned 16. How many parents would give their blessing to their kids getting on a bus and going to somewhere where the only person he really knew was another younger musician guy that he had known in Sioux City? It wasn't like somebody's parents were saying, we'll put him up in our house. And that wasn't what the deal was. So he, you know, went to Denver and pretty clear that he would have crashed with brad early on but he was so determined it didn't matter you know some people would maybe unless you were running away from home where you your parents were not on your side you were at constant war with your parents you know this is what a lot of runaways are where you just can't handle it you're too traumatized your parent and you and your parents are at war well, Tommy and his parents weren't at war as such at all. They weren't. So um, he wasn't running away. He was running towards something, which was this abstract goal of, okay, I got to go do my music somewhere else. I want to make it. I want to, in the background, I want to become Elvis. And what is the path to that? Well, who knows? He just knew he was going to go. And so he gets to Denver and, Um, He just found opportunities within the first 30 days to basically play Purple Haze for people. And one of them was Jeff Cook. One was Dave Brown, who became his guitar tech. And one was Barry Fay, who had just opened The Family Dog, uh, which was a club in Denver that was an offshoot from the very hip beginnings of the counterculture music scene in San Francisco that Chet Helms did. And Chet was then the pipeline for bringing all the hippest bands in 1967 to Denver. Denver never had anything like that. And so the deal was that Chet Helms would be the pipeline for the national acts, and Barry would then book opening acts from Denver, and he'd be the one running the world well, it didn't take long, you know, within those first 30 days that uh, Tommy had gotten into American Standard, which was a band. It was actually a band Jeff Cook had called Crosstown Bus, and Tommy famously pounded on this door when he heard a band rehearsing in this downtown Denver basement. And they let him come in, and he said, can I, I kind of jam? Can I play? And he said, well, and he looked like he was 14 years old. Okay. He plugs in and plays Purple Haze and immediately uh, he, and then he left and then Jeff's like, wait a minute. I want I want to reform the band with Tommy as the guitar player. Well, he was able to get a hold of Tommy, found him through the grapevine and immediately hired him. Well, Crosstown Bus had a, bo- a booking agent, a local booking agent and so the Band became American Standard, and one of the first people they got put in front of was Barry Fay, who now had the family dog. Again, he had the position of booking the local acts. So American Standard got booked instantly, pretty much instantly, as a band that could play at a family dog. So imagine you've just left Sioux City, gotten off the bus, and within a month, you're opening for national touring acts in the hippest club east of San Francisco. It's just completely crazy. And he got instant acceptance, instant validation. And the message of all that was, yep. Okay. That's why I went to Denver. It just all happened like immediately. And it's not though that he was making a lot of money right away, but you know, he was able to figure out you know, where to crash, where to sleep, how to continue to just be in Denver, and so and that was the beginning of proving he proved to himself that this was this is exactly what he should have done if he had any fear at all, and I don't think he had a whole lot about going off and just doing this. You no, know, that that kind of disappeared real quick, and. So one thing led to another and um, uh, the family dog actually closed about nine months later. And so that whole situation um, came to an end and he had heard about that Lonnie Mack back in Cincinnati was doing some shows and some that he could potentially be in Lonnie's band. So he actually left Denver at right at the point the family dog closed because there weren't going to be any more opening act slots. Okay. So might as well take this offer that he had gotten an offer to play with a professional musician in Cincinnati. So he went there and I think he was only there for a month or two playing some shows. And that's where he met John Ferris. who wound up being one of the members of the original Zephyr. So he came back to Denver. And as I was earlier talking about how Zephyr formed up in Boulder and they you know, had had a run of a couple of years, and then what well, different situations occurred that had Tommy wanting to quit Zephyr, and and again his determination came into play again, because all of a sudden he was going to form his own band, and it was an uh, energy, and so an energy when they first started it started right after. Mahavishnu Orchestra album Inner Mountain Flame had come out and Tommy had already played with Jan Hammer and Billy Cotton, two of the members of the Mahavishnu Orchestra which is one of the most absolutely mind-boggling trend-setting electric bands in the history of popular music and and so energy formed and they started out as all instrumental and soon they realized the kind of clubs they could get gigs in they were going to have to also play blues music. They were going to have to have vocals to try to fit into Colorado because they weren't in New York City. They didn't have a national booking agent. They didn't have the benefits that the Mahavishnu Orchestra had because John McLaughlin had risen up the food chain in the jazz world. And by him being then based in New York, and he had been part of the Miles Davis World, which was the hippest piece in in the jazz world, so he was able to get big time management, big time booking agents. He had already become a known commodity. Where back in Boulder, Tommy didn't have any of that. Barry Fay became his manager, as they had all seen Zephyr's manager, but Barry was really coming from a place of being a concert promoter, not an artist manager. And also, again, Barry was loath to spend his own money because Barry, quite frankly, was addicted to gambling and any money he made, he was going to spend it in Vegas. But he wasn't really going to be the one helping underwrite Tommy. So Tommy was then left with, okay, who's going to book energy? And... In uh, doing these oral histories I've been doing for this manuscript I'm writing for a potential streaming video series. I'm writing a new, in-depth, never-before-told story of Tommy. Uh, One of our partners is uh, Karen Millaberry Matthews, who was Tommy's long-term girlfriend up until the last year of his life, who was from Denver. And they had moved in together up in Boulder and in doing some interviews uh, in the past year with Karen, she had gone, she had all this Tommy stuff that she had had over the years stored at her place and she had gone and pulled some of it out. And one of the things she had was a 12 month calendar you know, the kind you put on the wall. It's like, where each day is like a square on it. And she had the calendar that Tommy used as as Energy's booking agent. He was Energy's booking agent. And he tried to figure out where all the clubs were, where in Colorado and maybe in out some outlying states. And he would then write in there the dates that they had And if it actually was paying good money, he would write $300, $500, $600. And that, when she shared that with me, it just really um, brought home the point of how determined he was. He was the booking agent. He was the one on the phone trying to hustle up gigs for his first band that was his. And the, the other musicians in the band were all Able to keep up with Tommy, they were able to support his style and hang with him, and really helped him to own. Wow, here it is, my first band. And but again, the real thing for me was how this calendar represented how determined he was. He was going to make this thing happen, no matter what. And as we talked before, you know, energy never did get attraction they needed because it was just too it was too progressive it was too far out it was too amazing but it was over the heads of the music establishment that existed in Colorado he did come back and do some shows in Sioux City he did do some shows up in Sioux Falls because of the old contacts he had and whatnot but you know they weren't ever able to really sustain it Uh, And Karen had a full-time job as a seamstress working for a very hip uh, local uh, gentleman who had a clothing custom clothing company. She wound up being like their top person uh, there. And so she was making a living, helping support them. But there was a lot of pressure. When when is this going to happen? When is this going to break through? They did some demos that were good enough to, in theory, get them a deal. But Barry just didn't, he just wasn't, he had contacts, but he just wasn't really a natural for being an hardest manager. So they weren't able to get a deal. And that's when he got the offer to be in the James gang. And then right at the same time is when Cobham got a hold of him and said, hey, I want to do, I'm doing a solo album, Metrum, with the On Hammer again and also Leland Sklar, would you come be the guitar player? Which, that project's what really catapulted him big time. So one of the things I didn't talk about the other day was, again, how his determination showed up. And he really, you know, part of him was going, wow, I would love to get some more hip gigs like what Spectrum was. And so there was a club in Boulder called The Good Earth, which was downtown on the downtown Boulder mall. It was in an older historic kind of office building. And up on the second floor, they had built this like 400 seat nightclub. And they were bringing in a lot of cool touring acts, a lot of funk, you know, it was a kind of a party place, but with a kind of a hip edge as to what kind of music they were booking. Well, I heard a story uh, from a friend of a friend's, Back then, was actually helping uh, manage and road manage Larry Coryell, of course, was one of the great legendary jazz guitar players of the 70s and 80s. And so what Tommy did was he did what's called four-walling, which is when a club that normally books their own acts to come in Somebody will come to them and say, Hey, I would like to rent the room because I have an act I want to book. And so, what Tommy wanted to do, and he did it, was to forewall to good earth so he could bring in Larry Coriel and his band to play. And he would then open for them and then he would meet them and get to jam with them. Well, who was the drummer in Larry Coriel's band? If anybody's really into Larry Coriel, here's this, they'll be able to answer. It was Alphonse Muzon who was a very funky, talented drummer, songwriter, musician. And um, so Tommy did that for walling Obviously, they opened for him, hung out. And then Alphonse, like Billy Cobham, got an offer to do a solo album. And Alphonse was extremely competitive with Billy. Alphonse was really driven to want to make his mark and so okay who's he going to hire at that point to play on an album with him just like Billy Cobb has Tommy and so that's where the album Mind Transplant came out um, that Tommy did it came out on Blue Note Records and so that was like Spectrum Part 2 where Tommy again was Now getting to show everybody the depth of his chops, his his jazz, fusion, improvisational abilities, which had stunned everybody on spectrum. But that was fully a manifestation again of his of his determination and how he had you know was his own booking agent, so he created an opportunity to do that. And it wasn't like somebody called him up and said, Hey, you wanna do this? He made that happen. And I think that's a piece that I wasn't aware of and a lot of people have no clue about that part of Tommy. That he was he was moving he was trying to move the chess pieces around to keep his career moving forward. And so again, the theme that, that is, again this determination piece. So it finally got to the point where he then moved to Los Angeles. And finally, we're talking about nine months, whatever. All this happened in such a short period of time when you really look at it. But in telling the story, you can make it seem like, oh, well, this was way back. But I see we're running out of time here. Um
0: you got about a so minute and a
1: half. We're, so I guess we're going to have to have filled up what was supposed to be the deep purple half hour with this story. But the point is, he moved to L.A. and he was going to, he started working on his teaser album. And, um, but, you know, he was still needing to figure out where am I going to start making some money? And that's when the offer came in from Deep Purple to come down to audition, which I think is exactly where we left the last episode. So I guess we're going to have to do another another thirty minutes here to to uh, get to that because I golly I just can just talk and talk and talk about tommy bull
0: so. well we're we're into part five where uh he gets into deep purple uh and we're gonna take a deep dive into that too because that's gonna to take a little bit but thanks for listening uh we're gonna get another episode right out for you Yeah, this is uh, Mr. Southeast Iowa, Dave Johnson with Round Guy, the podcast. And we want to tell you about Anchor FM. Let me tell you, man, that is the thing that got us going. We were trying so hard to find a way to get to do a podcast, and everything was too difficult until we found Anchor FM. Boy, is it easy. They're with you every step of the process. There's help. There's support. There's analytics. It'll tell you who's listening, and where they're listening. They'll help you find advertisers. They'll help you find listeners. Anchor FM, you're the best. Welcome back to Round Guy the Podcast. As uh we as Round Guy remembers Tommy Bolan. I was greatest uh rock guitarist ever, uh really, uh and people don't know enough about him. We're at part five. We're with uh Michael Drum, uh Tommy Bolin's friend and uh documentarian. Uh I'll play a little music here. little uh Post-toasty, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, welcome back to the program, Michael.
1: Glad to be here, because, uh, uh, yeah, I'm glad we get a chance to help establish what most people don't know, is that they may never have heard of one of the most gifted, brilliant musicians ever who just matriculated in Sioux City, Iowa, Tommy So Glad to be here.
0: go ahead. uh, Pick up where you left off.
1: Okay, I was waiting for a question. Um, Yeah, so I think end the last time, we were talking about that Tommy had moved to Los Angeles. Well, what had happened before he moved to Los Angeles was that um, he'd become good friends with Joe Walsh in Boulder because when Joe Walsh quit the James game, there was a brief moment where the Denver Boulder area was thought of as going to become the next big cultural Mecca and a number of really gifted musicians like Steven Stills, Joe Walsh and some others had moved to the Denver Boulder area. And Joe was one of them and Caribou Ranch had just started, which was going to become the most hip, incredible uh, retreat recording studio in the country up in the mountains outside of Boulder. And Joe forms his group, Barnstorm, um, and he needed a bass player. And he told Tommy, You know any bass players? Well, Tommy's best buddy bass player, who was about to be in energy with him, was Kenny Passarelli. And so he said, Well, I got Kenny. And so Tommy turned Joe onto Kenny, and they started recording the Barnstorm album. And Rocky Mountain Way is a co-written composition between Joe Walsh and Kenny Passarelli. So, anyway, Tommy Bowen and Energy famously opened for Barnstorm on some local club gigs. Joe paid for a birthday party for Karen on her 21st birthday at a fancy uh, restaurant in Boulder. And, and And Joe was famously quoted saying, Tommy can play rings around me. So anyway, he had quit the James gang and they had replaced him with Dominic Troiano, who uh, was a very good guitar player, a good songwriter. but Dominic didn't like playing live. So they had done an album after Joe left called Straight Shooter and it did not get any radio play and it didn't sell well at all. And as they started playing out, it was apparent Dominic didn't really relish playing as a like a rock star on stage. And so Jim Fox got a hold of Joe and was kind of just, you know, shooting the shit, but saying, this isn't really working. Dominic doesn't really relish playing live. And Joe went, I got just the guy for you, Tommy Bolin. And so that's how Tommy got into the James game. And as we talked in the last session before, and they wound up doing James Gang Bang and the Miami album. And Tommy got out to and started touring along with the James Gang in their circuit. They were on Don Kirshner's rock concert. And they were also on the Midnight Special. And started. And then, so Tommy got a sense of okay, but he also, through having that money, was starting to you know, be able to afford to indulge himself a little more with some drugs. and, And he was having people from every direction telling him how great he was. And because he was, and so he kind of then lost his focus of really caring about being in the James game. And he really was overdue for doing Tommy Bowling. I mean, the fact that he would then have to be in some other group to get traction really spoke to that he was stuck in Boulder, stuck with Barry as manager. And the hotbed of the music industry was Los Angeles at that point, infamous for like the Laurel Canyon scene. I don't know if people have seen the documentaries about Laurel Canyon. It was just the hotbed, and all the top musicians would move to Southern California. And they would then be part of this incredible music community. And they would get signed. And all the David Geffen was there dreaming up new super groups that members could get plugged into. And it just became clear that Tommy needed to be in Los Angeles because Colorado just didn't have the mojo. But in going there, he still had Barry as his manager. So he moved to Los Angeles and began the process of starting to record his album. It was time for Tommy to do Tommy. And even though the James gang, that he was able to do a lot of his music, his songs, and establish himself as a rock type artist versus a jazz fusion artist, um, it just wasn't what he wanted to do. And he was overdue for doing Tommy. So he goes to L.A., and Barry put together a group of guys, gambling buddies actually, to help invest in Tommy and to keep him afloat while he was out there. And they started recording the teaser album, getting that, doing demos and starting to put tracks together. And then they found a potential label for him, which was actually Matt Weiss's Nemperer Records. And Matt owned Emperor Artists, and they had been the management company of the Mavish New Orchestra. And Nat had actually gotten his start because he was Brian Epstein's lover in 1967 in London. They were both gay men. And Nat, unlike Brian, had great ears. He could actually hear. Brian Epstein was did not really wasn't a music guy. Nat was Nat got wind of Tommy, and he really wanted him. And he said, "Encourage them. Do an album that will be rock and jazz. You go for it. You do it." And so they're working on that, but there's no money coming in at that point. He's not getting royalties from anywhere, and then, and he's in Los Angeles, and and Barry's providing some, you know, money to to live on, but it was really pressurized because LA everybody he was meeting and running into were all a lot of these famous musicians who were doing pretty well and he was feeling like a step behind meanwhile um, Deep Purple had hit the peak when they did the In Rock album what had happened with Deep Purple they had done the three albums in the late 60s and um, they were in the song Hush became a big hit, which actually Joe South wrote. Uh, And they, they had a breakthrough hit with it. And, you know, doing pretty well. But they were going, wait a minute, you know. And what really got Deep Purple to say, wait a minute, was that Led Zeppelin broke through. And they took a look at Led Zeppelin and went, hmm, what are the ingredients here? And one of them was to do a louder, guitar-based, harder-type sound. And that, that it Led up and did more than that, but that component really inspired the members of Deep Purple, which, of course, Ritchie was, Blackmore was the guitar player. And they decided, you know what? I'll be a little bit crassier let's copy Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and not that they were going to sound like them, but that they were going to then go to a heavier sound. And that's what the In rock album was. And all of a sudden, boom, they just blew up giant. And they were off and running. And immediately got a lot of traction around being a touring act. And then Richie wound up having a fight with Ian Gillan, And they wound up getting, you know, to where they wanted to make a change. And they found David Coverdale, who obviously went on to tremendous success. And they found Glenn Hughes, who had been in trapeze. And so they brought both of them in and reformed the band. And that's when they really hit the largest uh, success doing the infamous California Jam concert where there were 500,000 people there. And by then, the whole booking scene around the world had really developed. And Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones had shown how you could tour all over the world and just make a fortune. The Deep Purple ascended. You know, they did the Machine Head and Smoke on the Water became such a giant hit. And then that's when I believe Ian left, and then they got David and uh, Glenn in there, and so they had just become huge, and all this money's pouring in. Well, Glenn, famously, was into R and B music and funk music, and Richie was like allergic to that kind of stuff, and so all of a sudden, you know, there's starting to be this friction in the band. And Richie had kind of absorbed the ego place that the guitar player is the guy. And he, and I also just hypothesized myself that he may not have been a full business partner in the group. I don't know. Because with all that money coming in, it seemed a little odd that he would just quit. But he probably had a sense of if I quit, he'll be in charge of Rainbow. You know, it'll be his band he won't have four other musicians that are splitting the pie five ways and he'll be able to cash in and be in charge of his own destiny. So he quit and deep purple management's like, what are we going to do? We can go out on a world tour in two months and just have huge amounts of money and be just incredible. And so they, Auditioned a number of. They wanted Jeff Beck, and Jeff was like, "I'm not interested." And Clem um, Clemson, I believe, who'd been in Humble Pie, got auditioned, and they just didn't think that he had enough presence to hold that slot. And so they're sitting there in L.A., and the whole band had moved to Los Angeles, and they're going, "Okay." Well, this isn't, we haven't yet found the bullseye as to how we can then add a new guitar player and really energize and get back out on the road, take advantage of these massive offers that are pouring in before it's too late. You know, we need to hit the ground running here quickly. There goes kind of this pressure. And all the musicians realize that they wanted to keep that momentum going. So Coverdale famously had somebody had turned him on to the Billy Cobham Spectrum album and and he played it for everybody else and that they all went, who the hell is this guitar player? Oh my god. They just were all stunned going you know, this is way beyond Richie to be blunt and there's you know, a lot of Deep Purple fans from back then still think Richie's you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread and they think that's sacrilege that should be said but that's how I feel. And so um, they're like, how do we get a hold of this guy? How do we get a hold of him? And it turns out Tommy was living in LA. He was there. And he was really nearby. So they were able to connect the dots and uh, get a hold of Tommy and say, come on down. They had they rented this pirate this warehouse where they were storing all their touring gear. It, it was called Pirate Sound. And um They invited him to come down, and he came down, and he was like skin and bones. He hadn't been eating very much, and he was starting to have more of a liquid diet. And he plugged in, and it was just like Spectrum album. It was just like the James Gang. It was just like when he first came to Denver in 1967 playing Purple Haze for people. It took 30 seconds for them all to go, holy shit. It was unbelievable. Done. You're in. And every single situation Tommy ran across where he was picked to, to do this or do that, play with this band, do this situation. It was always the same reaction. So, yeah, you're hired. And, um, and so we're going to need to put a record together. It was the summer of seventy-five where they had you know, they decided let's go woodshed in Munich and put a new record together. Well, Tommy all of a sudden was in the fast lane and he had been you know, he had, had a propensity for you know, drinking and doing drugs. In that era, back then, this was thought of as romantic, and he wound up—you know—whatever drove him to want to escape from whatever people would, would do. You know, it was always romanticized as it was, it was hip and cool, and and uh, but a lot of people were actually running away from something, and um, so um, he started having access to more uh whatever drugs, cocaine, alcohol, by being in the deep purple world because they were huge. And Glenn at that point was infamously and had become a major cocaine addict. And he and Tommy both, you know, shared that, and all of a sudden Tommy had a running buddy to then go crazy with. And, um, and Ian Pace famously, you know, I still see pictures of him holding a bottle of Jack. Daniels, you know, so, and, but back then ev- it was like, everybody was doing whatever and everybody was doing cocaine. And, um, but Tommy had a little bit more of a, a darker streak around really having a taste for that. And all of a sudden he could have any, you know, it was like, I was saying life in the fast line, that Eagle song, everything all the time. That's why they wrote that song, which was The Year Tommy Died. It totally represented exactly that. that they, everybody was just kind of hurtling out of control. And Glenn was uh, hurtling out of control also. And they went to Munich, and their stories right away were about Tommy disappearing for a day and then showing up with these two amazing and gorgeous women, and Ian Pace has told this story about they came in and, and anybody got any drugs? Anybody got, it? oh, here's a bottle of pills. And then he just poured out a bunch of pills and swallowed them all. And it turns out that they were downers. And it, they were like shocked. Oh my God. And yeah, he just passed out. And then when he came to a day later, he came into the studio and ready to go. And he wrote most all the music for that album. And he had some songs he brought with him, but then a lot of them were kind of written on the spot and Coverdale do the lyrics for them. And then Tommy had the song getting tighter that he had actually written earlier, a number of years earlier. Cause Tommy, you know, he's known for his jazz fusion. He's known for his rock But he also was way into funk and R&D. And he had been steeped in black music from the early age. And so Getting Title" was a real funk song. And then Glenn Hughes put the lyrics to it. But in doing the album, Glenn famously was so strung out on cocaine that he went over the edge. And they had to ship him back to England to to go to the hospital to to dry out. And they were like, "What the hell are we going to do?" And they were, and that's when they did the song "Dealer" and Tommy sings part of "Dealer." And then they did "Coming Home," which was the lead track for the record. And in those days, if somebody wound up not being able to be there, the band was under pressure to keep going. So do this song Coming Home which was kind of like the introduction to this new Deep Purple and Tommy and Coverdale wrote it it's a great song it's the first song on the album and Tommy played bass on it because Glenn was not there he's you know deed Um. so anyway we, you know they wrapped up doing the album and and going back and listening to it now song for song you know, there's a lot of people who think, except for the old school, died in the world, Richie fanatic fans, those people who had listened to it with an objective ear, and a lot of people who were Richie fans over the decades now go, Wow, that may be their best album ever in terms of how fresh it was, in terms of the energy of it, in terms of what Tommy brought to the table. And that the band at that point was like, okay, we're ready to go because they could get out on the road and just do some great shows. So in November, they all flew to Hawaii where they were going to do the very first shows ever. And the month before, Teaser came out. And so once he got into Deep Purple, he was pretty much about finished with Teaser and he had gotten the deals with Emperor Records but he now was going to be paying all this cash to be in the band or Barry was going to get the money. And so he had to put doing, having his own band doing promotion for teaser on the back burner because there was all this excitement about Tommy's going to get paid a bunch of money now to be in Deep Purple. And so in the retrospective of it all, it really was stupid that that happened that way because the whole point was that Tommy was finally going to do his first solo album which the teaser album is just one of the most brilliant albums from a rock perspective of the 1970s and that that album wound up coming out and he couldn't tour behind it he couldn't tour behind it he couldn't do promo for it he was now doing Deep Purple who already could make all this money turn that was just a mess in my opinion um and it was really a disservice to tommy as the brilliant talent that he was but it was an expedient payday that this was going to be so much money that you know can't not do that so off to honolulu they went and tommy who at this point had started uh, he and karen were not always together anymore But Tommy, when this came along, wanted Karen to go with him, and so they all flew to Honolulu. Tommy had never been in Hawaii, neither had Karen, and they did the first shows there, and then went off, and they toured from uh, December to March. They did the the Far East, they did uh, Australia, New Zealand in Japan and they famously did a show in Jakarta, Indonesia, where they wound up getting caught up in this bizarre shakedown by the Indonesian government where they staged a fake situation where some Indonesian security agents masquerading as just people pushed one of D I think it was his road no it was somebody else's roadie down the elevator shaft and the guy died. And they then came in and arrested Glenn Hughes. And they were basically going to hold the band for ransom. And the price for them to get through this was that they had to stage a second show, big show, outdoor show, where the government would get all the money. They basically forced them at gunpoint. And to do this, this whole banana republic, the Indonesian government, totally shook them down. And and that occurred there in Jakarta. And it's an infamous episode. And it was just like, what the hell is going on? Craziness. Well, so then from there, they went, they came back to the States, they did some shows here, and they went to England. And throughout this whole period, Tommy, again, is getting more and more access to more and more drugs and alcohol. He and Glenn are, you know, running wild. And some of his shows for them started having an inconsistent quality to them, um, which was kind of the beginning of a problem where he, was, he would binge out. He, cause it wasn't like he was doing the same amount of drugs every day, out of control, kind of stupor. But he would binge out, and so his performances became inconsistent. And when they got to England... Uh, That's where they've had the famous show in Liverpool, which wound up being their, I think their last show, The people were screaming, where's Richie, where's Richie? And and Tommy was just like, you know, this was not fitting the narrative. It was based on how brilliant he was. And he had given up promoting his solo album and yeah, so what happened was Deep Purple would let him do one or two songs. They agreed that he would do one or two songs per night, or they would be songs from the teaser album. And he would promote himself to where here's 20, 30, 40,000 people where they would then be introduced to Tommy Bowl and he's now going to sing a song for you. And um, so he used it as a platform to, to, to promote himself. And it worked. You know, that's part of what Happened. He did become much better known, but there were things that were cross currents going on um, in terms of his management situation, um, not being able to, to really get his own band going, and the fact that he was now becoming more dependent, i.e. developing an addiction to the drugs and, and that heroin and opioids had become part of the mix on more of a common basis and that he was not getting to where it was becoming a burden for him on a personal level and um, so March came and they ended the tour and everything just kind of imploded to where there was all this acrimony and that Deep Purple is now done. And all the members felt, okay, well, Tommy's going to go his solo career. And so everybody felt, well, okay, we're on top of the world. We're giant. We'll all sign off on the idea that Deep Purple is done. And we'll all go um, do our own solo projects. And that brings us to the next chapter, which would be the beginning of the very first Tommy Boland band
0: All right, well let's cut it and off it there we've only got about a minute left anyway So yeah
1: so and then April, May, June, July, August September, October, November December nine months is the last chapter where Tommy finally has his own band and by the end of that year an amazing album gets done finally gets a chance to do his music in front of people. And by the end of the year, he's starting to get radio play. Crowds are starting to love it. And then
2: it
0: passes. Well, you've been, we've been talking to Michael Drum about uh, the great Tom Tommy Bolin. And uh, if you've been listening uh, all through these six episodes, your mind may have post-hosted somewhere along the line. But don't worry about it. Episode six is coming right up. Yeah, this is uh, Mr. Southeast Iowa, Dave Johnson with Round Guy, the podcast. And we want to tell you about Anchor FM. Let me tell you, man, that is the thing that got us going. We were trying so hard to find a way to get to do a podcast, and everything was too difficult until we found Anchor FM. Boy, is it easy. They're with you every step of the process. There's help. There's support. There's analytics. It'll tell you who's listening and where they're listening. They'll help you find advertisers. They'll help you find listeners. Anchor FM, you're the best. Welcome back to Round Guy the Podcast. As we continue our coverage of the story of Iowa's own Tommy Bolin, one of the greatest guitar players ever. As we're up to episode six, as we talk to uh, Michael Drum, documentarian, personal friend, uh, of Tommy Bowen. Welcome back to the program, Michael. Hey, I'm, I'm so
1: glad to be here and to be able to share an in-depth appreciation of Tommy as to how how I feel about him. And I believe there's other people who uh, share, share that. And I've been doing a deep dive on him here in the past year to write a new manuscript about Tommy so that we can hopefully get a streaming video series going you know But Peter Jackson just did get back you know there's a there's a variety of different ways that hopefully Tommy could get through a new story being written that we can attract kind of support to get some kind of episodic put together um, but we'll see but that's why I've been doing this deep dive is to bring a whole deeper awareness to the Tommy story and to Show that the, the elements needed in Hollywood, the brilliance, the the, the trauma, the, the the kind of underworld piece that the music industry was enveloped in back in those days. But there's a lot of different threads in this that kind of push the kind of buttons that. Netflix it would be one of our big choices. We would love to do Netflix. And Netflix lately has had quite the reputation of trying to do justice to people who maybe got wronged or that the world didn't really get to understand who they were. And I, we believe, I believe strongly that that's the Tommy Boland story. In a nutshell, he died right before he was going to be famous. And Iowa's most brilliant export never got the chance to really become famous. And so that's what drives me 45 years later. Because I knew him back then. And and so to go back to this point in time, um, it's April of 1976. Tommy has left Deep Purple. It's like that burning in flames, like the studio in Montreux and Frank Zappa's studio burnt. And they had Smoke on the Water. Deep Purple is now like smoking wreckage on the side of the the lake. And everybody's going to go do a solo career or come up with some new configuration, but Deep Purple is done, quote unquote. And finally, Tommy is going to be able to do something he should have done earlier. Let's have the Tommy Boland band. And, he has to put it together. He has to put the lineup together. And his album teaser had come out in October of 75, which in retrospect is held up as one of the most amazingly unique, brilliant rock albums ever. And it was a fusion of rock, jazz fusion, it had Brazilian music on it. It had just an amazing array. Every song is completely unique. And a lot of the acts back then, you know, they would get a certain groove and they would just do it over and over again. Tommy was so brilliant, he could do a record that every song was utterly different and amazing all on its own. And the teaser album was just brilliant in that way. But it also provided a bit of a challenge because back in those days, you know, album oriented rock radio was starting to really come on strong. And if you got a record, in heavy rotation like Led Zeppelin had like Jimi Hendrix had like any of the bands that wound up blowing up big out of rock in the early and mid 70s once you got on this exploding radio for the Rolling Stones are an example and all of a sudden there were dozens of these stations all over the country and this was the era of rock music on the radio guitar based music on the radio if you could get those stations to play you, it was a license to print money. And Teaser was a little bit tricky that way because those rock radio stations weren't necessarily wanting somebody to appear to be such an incredibly diverse genius. They wanted to more feel like they understood that somebody was a rock musician. And so there were these politics involved. So. The teaser album wound up not really getting the kind of airplay that it could have. And then we're looking at November, December, January, February, March, April, looking at seven months later, Tonic would finally be able to go out on tour, quote unquote, behind the album. Which is a bit of a delayed, you know, this was not (laughs) preferred strategy, but that was what they were left with. So it came time to put his first band together. And he put the most incredible band possible together. Uh, Narita Michael Weldon on drums, who wound up becoming one of the... produced Whitney Houston, produced Aretha Franklin, and was one of the greatest drummers of that era. He had replaced... Billy Cobham in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. But he wanted to be in a rock band. And people who are familiar with the track Marching Powder, which was one of the jazz fusion tracks on teaser, that's Narada on drums. And then the most influential keyboard player of that era, who John Lord, who Purple got all inspired by, was Mark Stein, who in the Vanilla Fudge had made the B3 the centerpiece of that band, and the Fudge had broken up, and Mark was available to be the keyboard player, so he came on board. Reggie McBride had been in Rare Earth. And then played with Stevie Wonder and his African-American funk, bottom-end, great bass player was available. And Norma Jean Bell, who had been in Frank Zappa's group and had been briefly in the Mavish New Orchestra when Narada was there, was a great sax player, a great singer. And so that was the group. And because of Tani's back when he was 12 years old playing in this African-American jazz club. Look at the makeup of this band. You've got a black bass player, a black drummer, and a black lesbian sax player, and Tommy and Mark Stein as the first Tommy Boland band. Tommy was completely colorblind. None of this stuff meant anything to him. He just wanted to play with the best players. And that first lineup was exactly that. So they wound up doing a number of shows, and they came to Denver in the middle of May, and I was there at that show. Tommy came and did a meet-and-greet appearance at another club in the late afternoon, and I hadn't seen him for two years. And, you know, the rumors about Deep Purple had preceded him that day, about that things were crazy in Deep Purple. And I was there at this club, and he came walking in. and just walked in the door and came in. And I go, is he even going to remember me? Because I had helped him in some specific ways three three years before up in Boulder that were important to him. I had co-signed on a sound-on-sound reel-to-reel deck so he could record demos. And this was a key point in time where he had no money, and he was just bursting with songs. He was just writing songs like people turn on a faucet. He was that prolific and that gifted as a songwriter. I know the whole format is kind of the greatest guitar player. He was the greatest, period, at whatever he decided he wanted to do. And so I had helped him. And he came to me and said, would you co-sign my mother at co-sign on a car for me? I had credit. He didn't. He didn't have the money to buy it. So I co-signed on an installment contract from the stereo, so Howard Sound, up on the hill in Boulder. And so he comes walking in uh, two and a half years later. He's been through all this incredible rock star, you know, thing going on, Deep Purple. And yeah, hearing about drugs. Was this guy even going to remember me? Is he going to be present? What the hell is going to happen? He walks in and sees me and comes to me quickly and gives me a giant bear hug. It was the Tommy Bolin I knew was still Tommy Bolan. And that, you know, that stuck with me forever. That kid from Sioux City who was appreciative and never forgot who helped him, even though he had then gotten caught up in all this craziness of the music industry, that he never forgot somebody who just on a very simple, honest level had helped him out. That was the real Tommy Bowler. And that's part of why I'm doing this today, is because that's who he was. And yeah, things aren't that simple. And, you know, everybody's got different sides to their personality and different issues come up. But that's what everybody who knew him, from the beginning into those early years, and then some. Well, he had the most incredible personality. He was such a sweet, loving, positive, uplifting, vulnerable person. You didn't feel like you were dealing with some egotist. He was just really, and that was a lot of what propelled him in those early years. He just disarmed everybody with how his personality was just amazing. And I really believe that was the unconditional love he had got from Barb's mother that had everything to do with that sweet side of him. And so I had never forgotten. And so that show was at Ebbets Field that night, which the company I helped his brother start years later, the Tommy Bowen Archives, we wound up putting that show out on CD, Tommy Bowen Band Live at Ebbets Field. Um, And I went to see the show And the thing I noticed about the show was it was great, but he was really doing it from kind of a band perspective. It wasn't just about him standing up there and taking along guitar solos. He had put such a great band together. He gave, Narda had a song, Mark Stein had a song, and he let the keyboard, the sax, everybody had a chance to shine and to really be a band. And that was the thing. He wanted to have it be more like a band than just Tommy Boland standing there, you know, taking along solos. And the problem with all this was that his time in Deep Purple he had been able to indulge himself to where he had started to develop what, in fact, was an addictive attachment to opioids. And that he had developed the propensity to binge out and, and lose sight of that he was finally getting what he had dreamed of his whole life and that all these other steps had been about. And back in that time in 1976, the whole idea of recovery, uh, understanding why somebody gets addictive was just not even around and people would blame the addict. And now things have changed tremendously. And you don't blame the addict. And there's still people out there who blame Tommy for becoming an addict. That's what an addict is. You're, you're an addict. It's not, and people will, you choose to be it. No, you don't choose to be it. Circumstances equal that all of a sudden you're a prisoner. And Indeed, Tommy had started to have that problem, and that is a problem. But now, in 2021, we don't blame the addict. We understand that there's a deeper process to then try to help somebody. And somebody has to want to help. Back then, there was the crazy peak of how rock and roll was so romantic and doing drugs was so romantic. And Tommy had developed... A bit of a, he developed an attitude that this was cool, which was obviously it wasn't. But there was no way back then to support any other perspective. His manager was a gambling addict, a sound gambling addict, and, he, and that's what his number one deal was. He wanted to be able to go to Vegas and drop a million dollars every week, and he was promoting concerts on such a huge scale he was able to do that. So he is at cross purposes and Tommy is now struggling to be totally on top of his game through no fault of his own. And then they then went to New York and played my father's place on Long Island, which we released as a CD. And then they do the bottom line in Manhattan. And Tommy was there in the New York area for a few extra days and New York's one of those markets where there's some heavy drugs and the availability of drugs. And before that Bottom Line show, he did too much. And Matt Weiss, the owner of Memperu Records, who's this legendary figure in the New York music business, he, his company manages the Mahavishnu Orchestra, is there. John McLaughlin of the Mahavishnu Orchestra, the most incredible aggressive jazz electric guitar player ever is there. Karen, his little friend for years and years and years is there. And Tommy actually is impaired playing. And this was one of the great tragedies of kind of the precursor of what was about to come. And in being impaired, it was obvious everybody there and Matt Weiss was old school he he was brilliant had amazing ears but he himself was kind of old school he had come up through the late 60s early 70s scene where quite frankly the mafia and people with mafia type mentality and egos ruled everything and Matt had a bit of that himself. And he had gone out on a limb for Tommy. He loved him. He thought he was just as brilliant as anybody he had met. And he blessed the idea of Teaser being diverse and not just being a rock album, but being this incredible multi-diverse type record. And when Tommy couldn't hit it out of the park that night at the bottom line, that felt double-crossed in a way that mafia people feel double-crossed. And he went from loving him to dropping him from the label the next day. And Emperor was through Atlantic Records, which, of course, Ahmed Erdogan was the chairman of. And um, all of a sudden, he didn't have a record deal anymore. And Narada who's the most incredible drummer possible. And he had become, he was a follower of Sri Chimnoy, who was one of the Eastern spirituality leaders of that era that was very big in the music industry. And John McLaughlin and he, that's from Vishnu. Vishnu. That was John's spiritual name, where Narada is Michael Walden's spiritual name. They both had the same spiritual teacher. And part of that was he didn't do drugs, didn't drink, you got in touch with your own spiritual essence and Nardo didn't feel that he could continue to stay in the band Mm -hmm. and so he quit and 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 that was the end of this short little club tour and and it's like disarray meanwhile Barry had, had these investors investing in Tommy And the deep purple money had stopped. And he's starting to worry, you know, what the hell's going on here? And he has no clue about how to look at this in any way other than him being scared himself. So, um, but, okay, we need to pick up the ball here. And um, so he was able to get a hold of Columbia Records, which at that point had become the preeminent big album or label at that time it was really made huge inroads in the rock world where Springsteen was blowing up they had a lot of cachet going and he was able to get Tommy a new record deal within uh, a week and they signed him and he was given marching orders you need to put together a mainstream rock album without jazz, without fusion, we can't have confusion anymore here. You're, you know, we're going to find you, but you got to deliver now that we can go get on the radio. And you've got to trim, trim back the jazz part and just give us a mainstream rock album. And so Tommy had met Dennis Mackay at Trident Studios in, London back in 1975 when he was almost done with teaser. Like it had been done in such a way that where there were like 10 guitar tracks on these multi-track tapes, and Tommy was like, couldn't figure out how's he gonna sort through all this and mix it properly. he took the tapes to Trident who were the most famous studio in London. All the David Bowie albums, all the Elton John albums, huge, and the best engineers in the world. Ken Scott was there. It was just a phenomenal studio. So they got wind of, let's take the multi-tracks to Trident. And he went over there, and Dennis, who was their lead chief engineer, got assigned to sit with Tommy to search through these tracks so they could try to get the record to where it was, um, you know, could be finished, where Tommy could be excited. So, uh, Dennis started doing some initial mixing of things and Tommy's mind was blown. He had found his perfect engineering partner and they then went back to New York to record Marching Powder and People People. They needed the last two tracks recorded. They were able to, Dennis, with Dennis helping produce those, they were able to mix those and record those like instantly. So when Columbia gave the marching orders about, okay, we need a mainstream rock album, Tommy picked Dennis who was being elevated from engineer to co-producer with Tommy. And so it was going to be Tommy and Dennis. But Tommy already was ready to be the producer of a more mainstream rock album. And he never told Dennis that, okay, this is supposed to be a mainstream rock album. He just knew what he wanted to do. He knew he was going to do that and privatize is exactly that and they did all the tracking the basic tracks in five days which is the most ridiculously short period of time imaginable and bottom line was that tommy by that point had turned into an incredible producer And even though he had to start developing this addictive side, when the heat was on and they had to go in the studio, he was able to deliver the record Columbia Records wanted him to deliver, which with the test of time is just a brilliant, brilliant mainstream rock album. It doesn't sound like anybody else. It still has Tommy's personality all the way through it. And it worked. And the Columbia Records was able to get it on the radio that fall as Tommy went back out on tour. There's a show they did in Detroit that got recorded from the audience. You can hear the crowd going wild. Tommy was had problems, he had issues, but when the heat was on, he was a brilliant producer. Ennis said he always sang on key, on pitch. No vocal took more than two or three takes. Same with all the guitars on there. That was the most amazingly quickly recorded record, as important as it was, that I'm even aware of. And that, again, in July, August of that year, Tommy was able to just hit it out of the park. Um, with putting that record together to where he could finally get the big machine, the big record company machine to put him at the top of the list that his music could now be on dozens and dozens of radio stations all over the country. And finally, Tommy Bowen would not have to be in any other band ever again. And there's still people that say, Oh, we well, you join this group. That group, he was done. And Private Eyes was proof Tommy Bolin was now Tommy Boland. He didn't have to do anything but his music his way. And when they said, we need a record that is going to work in this context, he delivered it. And Dennis was just stunned. he got done having these interviews with him in the past month. He felt he had found his perfect partner and being able to create amazing music. And Dennis wound up recording many of the greatest jazz albums, many great rock albums. Long career. Long career. And 45 years later, he still says, the most amazing person he ever got to work with was the only person he felt was a true partner for him was Tommy and that nobody ever passed Tommy in terms of the impression that made on Dennis McKay and that he brought his skill home at the hippest recording studio in London to be Tommy's recording arts partner, not live guitar player, but there's a whole different thing, recording arts. And how do you use that for, to propel your career? And that summer, that's what happened. And Tommy was able to do that with Dennis. And to this day, 45 years later, Dennis, in focusing on this, could almost start crying. That Tommy, by before the end of the year, had passed away. That, to me, is the ultimate exclamation point about the brilliance. Tommy
0: Boland. Well, we've been talking to Michael Drum, a uh, uh, documentarian friend of uh, Tommy Boland's, uh, really pouring his heart out there for you. Uh, this was episode six. I still don't feel like we got it all told, but uh, I think we, we, we might have another episode in it sometime. time, but uh, thanks for to today
1: i think we i think we're, I think, we're, we're I think we may be at the match an ending point so
0: <laughs> well it sure was a, <laughs> sure was a great story and uh thanks a lot for your time appreciate it so much man appreciate right. it love you tommy.